Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hey, y'all. I'm Elizabeth Woodson, and I'm here with my co-host, Adam Hawkins. Adam, how you doing today? I am doing good. Feeling good. Feeling great. Ready to rock and roll. Okay. That's awesome. (laughs) There's a lot there. (laughs) So today, me and Adam have the privilege of talking to a friend of ours, colleague, ministry partner, Mason King. Um, And so today, we're going to talk with him and continue our conversation about the future of the church and discuss Christian education and formation. So before we jump into today's conversation, I want to be able to introduce my dear friend, Mason King. I could say so many things about Mason. Good things, say good Um, things. (laughs) They're all good things, they're always good things. Listen, Mason has a library in his office. He won't let me check out books because I tend not to return them. Yeah, that's um, called that's called theft. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's just strong. I feel like that's oh, strong, it Mason. Just strong. It's just long. It's just long term <laughs> borrowing. That's what. <laughs> so Mason serves as the executive um, director of groups, care, and in the institute at the Villas Church. He is also Doctor Mason King, um, which is fun. And so, Mason, why don't you tell the people a little bit about who you are and your love for theological education in the local church? Oh, yeah. Hey, um, I love learning about God in the local church. Super fun. Mm. I have been here at the Village for 11 years. I've worked at three of our different campuses and landed here about four years ago, came in, helped start the residency within the, uh, the Institute. And... I really have always been interested in, been thinking about, and wanting to really contribute to the development of the mind and uh, the life of a Christian over the long haul. And I think for me, it's always rooted in a question of who am I supposed to become? Like, what kind of person am I supposed to become? And who does God want me to be? And through my lived experience, interacting with people and pastoring the last decade, it really is coming down to helping people understand that God wants to be known, that His will is not a mystery, and that there is an an objective hope for who you become in your life. And so we talk about that. So I love getting to do that in the local church. I love helping other churches think through that of what it means to have a firsthand knowledge of your sacred text, to know what it is to apply that, that text to life, which we historically call doctrine, and then the picture of Christian maturity and sanctification, which is an ongoing process of change until the day you die. So I I get excited about that. And that's what I get to do here uh, with you on the team at TVCI and what I get to do with friends. And uh, I, I really enjoy it. So the goal of this conversation is to talk about the future of the church as it relates to Christian education and formation, and really to talk about the challenges, the opportunities we have, um, and really everything in between. And so Mason, um, you have a great pulse on what's happening in the culture in terms of formational issues. And so I want to start with talking about the challenges. Um, When we think about concepts like theology and formation and education, what is the church up against as we look into 2022 and beyond? I think what I'm starting to lose sleep over, if I give myself to it too much to think about, 
in kind of in the quiet moments to think about, hey, how am I, what do I have to get under to get someone's attention? Like, what do I, what do I have, what, what have they already accepted? What do they already believe that we have to like notice, get under and try and uproot in a way that is loving, that helps them see that either they chose it unknowingly or it has been given to them like a poison pill. And so there's a couple of things that I think about. I, I've spent some time over the last few years trying to think through the progression of thought over the last three or four centuries from the Enlightenment. Um, you look at Christian history and you see how truth was objective and external to your experience. Mm. Like it was settled. God was the authority. Uh, that's truth. And then over the last four to 500 years, truth has become very subjective based on your experience and it is internal. So you have a truth. I have a truth. Everybody's got a truth. And I am petrified to tell you that I think your truth is any different than mine yeah, because of societal shame or the fact that who am I to know? Like, who, who are you to tell me that this is not right? And so that's a big challenge. And I spend a lot of time talking with people to say, like, you didn't choose the time period you woke up in, the family you were born to, your socioeconomic class, the schools you went to, a lot of these things you didn't choose, but they shaped you. And by the time you realize that those all have worldviews, that there are biases and predispositions in those things, you have been shaped as a person. And you have to both own that and think, is this a person I want to be? And who do I want to become? What do I need to both take off and put on? And then how do I do that? Mm. What is it? What does it, what does it mean for me to grow in those ways? So I, I spend uh, twice a semester, twice a semester, once, twice a year, I get to go and sit with some high schoolers at a local classical school and I have this conversation with them and sitting with 18 year olds saying, man, all of these things, they shape who you become and the rest of your life really is living out who you want to become. So do you know what that is? Mm. And it's not just about your job. It's about your virtue, your identity, your character, your resiliency. And so... What's hard is that that takes settled thought. That takes time for reflection. It takes time to be educated. And uh, Elizabeth knows this at one of my one of my soapboxes. If you ever talk to me about technology and formation, um, the glowing rectangle, as Andy Crouch calls it, is just so dangerous mm. because it is. Uh, if you think about the attention economy. I've wrestled with, man, my phone offers so much for me. There's so many things that I can get through that. But primarily, I think what I get is digital candy. Mm. And by that, I mean, I think if I need a sugar fix or if I need a distraction or if I need to leave it like some type of comfort, my phone gives that to me in bite-sized chunks and, and scrolls and clicks and feeds through dopamine anytime I want it. Mm. And what, what I have to remind myself on repeat, because dopamine is so powerful, is that I have to get offended at the attention economy that actually promises me connection, but is selling me as a product to sponsors. Mm. Like I just, I have to sit that and go, and what it's doing is I give myself back to it. It's actually has a biological feedback loop in my brain that is causing me to short circuit and go back to the thing that gives me candy. And that's really dangerous when it comes to actually like getting anything done in your day, having any type of thought that's sustained or being able to sit by yourself and be alone or to not be fed on the candy that's tied to affirmation from people who don't know you yeah, and just like the highlight reel that you've put up. And so I don't think that social media is the destruction of society, but I do think it might be close. Yeah, And I, I do think that if we are not engaging in those spaces carefully, we have to really look at how it forms us. 
That's fascinating. Um, I read an article recently, and I cannot—I honestly can't remember it. But um, uh, the name or title, and so apologies to the author. But uh, I think she's a psychologist, and one of the things she was saying was that uh, maybe ten years ago or so, if somebody came in with anxiety, they'd start to look at some certain factors and talk about you know maybe certain um, CBT exercises to do or whatever. But now. Uh, typically, if she's talking to a younger person, the first thing she'll prescribe them as they have anxiety is a fast from video games yeah. and from yeah. their and from their phones, um, mm-hmm. because of that dopamine problem mm-hmm. that's happening. And I just think, you know, uh, so that's that's just for free. But I think uh, I'm I'm so with you on this, and and anybody who listens to our show knows we talk about that idea a lot. So a couple of things I heard you talk about there. Um, were and so just a follow up. One was the distraction of phone, how it almost interrupts thought constantly. So as it talk, as we think about formation for the Christian, it's like how do you how are how do you you know dedicate yourself to being formed when you have a constant uh, shallow. Uh, you know, device that allows these shallow affirmations and interrupted thought. The second was the idea that you just said where truth has kind of moved or the, the, um, the idea of truth has moved from external and fixed or external and objective to internal and subjective. Do you think the fight then is, is it a fruitless exercise? Well, maybe, maybe let me ask it a different way. Is the fight to, remind people or to teach them that truth is external and objective? Is that what you're trying to do in education? Do you try to move it back outside of the external? Or is that a fruitless fight in this day and age? I don't think it's fruitless. Uh, so I'm still in school. I, I promised my wife this was the last time. And <laughs> I I had class today. And I'm, I really focused on like virtue ethics. Yeah. That's what I'm working with with Jonathan Edwards. And we're having discussion today to try and think through like how how do um, kind of concurrent with the Enlightenment Puritan ideals around the freedom of the will and anthropology? Mm-hmm. Like who am I as a person? Mm-hmm. What freedoms do I have? And how do I make choices? Mm. Uh, those are all very important things. But if you put that in our modern moment, well, they're all cultural definitions for that. And so I... I think getting to someone and going, and this is why I'm bringing it up, is that in that discussion, as I'm trying to think through a project I'm working on, how do you pull that in? Because to convince someone in the modern era that they could actually find freedom from their self-created identities Mm. and the weight of having to have this fluid identity and put on different identities, that as someone from the Reformed tradition looking at it saying, God is for you. Mm. He is your creator. Mm. He has made a way for you to live that is both sustainable and for your good. Mm. And you can flourish in this way, but what you have to do to flourish in this way is to accept that he's right. Yeah. And to accept that he's right means that you have to lay down a lot of things of the worldview that you woke up in, mm. which is individual liberty. Uh, like it's all a democracy. And I, I mean, it's a, uh, it's an ancient church heresy that says um, you're not bad. You're just lazy. Mm. And if you tried harder, you have everything you need to please God. Yeah. And so that's uh, that's not what I think about mankind. I think that I don't have what I need outside of Jesus, mm-hmm. that I need God to give me a new heart and renew my ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to act differently. So that kind of conversation to get someone to think about that, I really just, I think you have to draw upon personal experience and say, 
how fatiguing is it to be the keeper and bearer of your identity and to try and construct this self when God has given you a self? Mm. And you don't, you don't have to do this. Yeah, There's a way forward for you. So I don't think it's fruitless. I think it is nuanced, and I think it takes relationship and time. But I like how you use it. I like how you use it. What you're saying is, I go first. I'm going first to that space of saying, "Okay, let's if if everything you're doing is like, let's just take it for granted what you're doing. You are constructing a self. Truth is internal. You have to figure it all out. You have to figure out who you are, what you are. You have to name it for yourself and figure out your own internal meaning. And then you just ask the question." how tiring is that? How is that working? What is that doing to your soul, right? And you you use that process to show the kind of error of the way and then bring them back to truth, which is objective and external, right? Is that... Yeah. And I, I think in our moment, what's important, I was having a conversation earlier this week um, that was talking about the hard thing is in our moment that if I were to say that to you, you would say, well, you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. You guys have jacked this up for a long time. Right. Like, you've gotten this wrong. And... Mm-hmm. and Many will say, oh, no, we haven't. We're fine. This is what you need to believe. This is truth. Instead of saying, you know what? Any institution that's run by people who are fallen is going to err. Mm. It is not infallible. While we have an infallible God, and he has a plan for us in a way to know him, the very basis of our faith is that we have a need. And so we're willing to make a truth claim that God is who he says he is. But if we're not willing to continue to admit that we have a need and say we've gotten it wrong, then people who we're trying to talk to about their own ways of providing for themselves will go, well, you don't admit that you got this wrong, and just pick a topic, like open up the drawer and go through Christian history and pick something that we've gotten wrong that we've tried to deny we got wrong. Mm. And we need to be able to talk about that with openness and honesty because we are fallen people. Right. And if we are willing to do that, I think it will create space for conversations to say, yeah, what makes you think with all these things that humans have gotten wrong in history that we've got it right right now mm-hmm. when you say that truth is your experience? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just a very privileged and proud way to look at it. Yeah, Mason, when you talk about um, like social media as it, it forms our identity, and I think most of us just don't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even mm-hmm. just seeing it as a distraction there's a dynamic where there's it's a really powerful tool pulling us in a specific direction if we're not aware of it. Yeah. And so when you think about like what's happened in our country in the past few years, um, just the cultural trends, what are the ways in which we unknowingly are being formed um, through the, our TV, through our social media? Kind of what do you see the presenting stories that even Christians themselves are buying mm-hmm. into that aren't connected to the truth of the gospel, and maybe people actually think that they are. That is such a uh, non-loaded question. That you, just asked. <laughs> you were like, "Hey, what's the easiest question I could hand over? I'll do this one." I just try. I try. It's great. I, I think there's a couple things to. <laughs> I'm so dead. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple things to to look at. Um, one is to realize that. Whenever you are reading a story, it has been edited for you. Mm-hmm. Like whenever you read the news, whenever you see a post, or are they called reels or those things that people do? Mm-hmm. If you ever, if you look, I'm just showing my age. Yeah. If you, <laughs> if you do any of that, you have to realize it's coming through someone else's filter. And so you have to be very careful who you trust to get information from. And having a wide diet 
of intake of media really helps you. But what's hard is that means you have to be a critical thinker and that takes effort and it's not nearly as rewarding. And so it's easier to get into an echo chamber on social media, especially when the algorithm says, oh, you like honeybees. Here's nine different accounts that you should follow. And then all of a sudden you don't realize the hidden connections behind them. And it just begins to kind of shape you in a certain direction. And so you have to look at that and go, oh, I'm actually participating in part of a system that's monetizing my attention. And when it does that, you look at the, the Facebook files of the stuff the Wall Street Journal has been doing recently. You can look at the YouTube algorithms that have talked about how it only gets progressive uh, towards baiting people to things that get more amplified in views and rhetoric. And it's, it's important for people to know that curiosity is a faculty that is just as fallen as every other faculty. Mm. Your curiosity is not neutral. And it has the temptation to lead towards bad things just like it can to good. But I think because it's curious, we think it's always good. And temptation, I think, or I'm sorry, technology, same word, technology, um, really can push us to go, oh, I'm curious about that. Let me try it. Let me look. Let me read this person's view. And all of a sudden, when everyone's become, when everyone is an expert or someone's given you a bite-sized piece of something, you are then the expert because you did a deep dive, which means you spent four minutes looking at things and have a, a formed opinion. Um, I'm not trying to take a hot take anybody, but I think that there, there are ways that we are being shaped because we're not thinking critically. And then that feeds the way that we see each other. It reduces, it reduces our uh, value of other people to show them kindness, dignity, and respect because we are taking a snap judgment of them, both through their, um, their ethnicity, their job, their faith, their views on one thing. Um, you want to talk about COVID-19 or a vaccine or race relations, any of that, or the presidency. It's because truth is interior and subjective now, we're not called to show each other kindness, dignity, respect on other than just a natural morality thing. And that's not even going so well for us. What, um, so, you know, we've talked a lot about the drawbacks of technology here, and I, and I, uh, I actually totally agree, and I'm not sure it's redeemable. So this question... Um, you know, this question is, is a hard one, uh, but I, I give it to you nonetheless. Is there opportunity in the technology for Christians in terms of formation? In other words, should we be thinking of things like what's a strategic online space or what's a strategic way to use social media or whatever? You know, maybe it's not the algorithms and maybe it's not the monetized deal, uh, although that's certainly even happening, I think, in Christian circles and some, you know, marketers. Yeah, or for sure. But yeah, it, it, what is there opportunity there? Is it, should we be thinking about? I mean, even this podcast, right, is not. It's it's somewhat saying, hey, let's leverage technology to to yeah. help form Christians. So. Well, and I think the que- the question is, for most people, it's like, well, just forget it. I'm just going to burn my iPhone, go back to my my eight track player, and carry your pigeons. And this is never the answer. And what the answer is, is not to be a Luddite, but it is to go, what is a thoughtful engagement with it? Because people have varied tolerances for things like this. Yeah. So some people can have Instagram on their phone, can have Facebook or TikTok or whatever people use. I know I just named two generations there. Yeah, you did. But um, 
some people are compulsory towards it and some people might check it once a week. Yeah. The the impact of it is going to be up to that individual's conscience and their really interior strength and desire. The like people ask me, "Why are you on Instagram if you bag on it so much?" And I say I'm there because the people that I shepherd are there. That's right. Like that's why I'm there. Because if if they are taking in a stream of just secular stuff or pictures of people's ice cream, which I also post, or just like people's highlight reel, I want to make sure that I'm also putting good things into the water. Yeah. And that I'm trying to build into their diet resources, provoking thoughts, sharing things that are good, true, and beautiful. Mm. But I also do not post every day. I'm not throwing everything on there. I'm limiting it and going, how do I use and steward this for the good of those that I'm around? And also because I, I want to relate to people. Yeah. And I want to be able to see what's going on in my friends' lives. And I want to know what shoes Elizabeth is wearing that day because I'm <laughs> jealous of her sneakers. Yeah. So it's like I check Instagram for those things. Oh, and yeah. I just, I you know, I, I want to know. Yeah. You um, can get your own sneakers, Mason. I know. <laughs> I need possible. some jigs. Uh, so... But I think that there is a way to use it. And I, I really, I have taken a lot of cues from Tony Rinke, yeah. uh, who wrote 12 Ways Dry Find is Changing You. And he's got a new book coming out called Technology in the Christian Life. There's a lot of authors that I've tried to read and think through as I am trying to work out for myself the impact of technology around formation as a Christian, but then also how to use it as an educational mm -hmm. space. As a, like, I share things all the time trying to think through, man, I'm just going to put this out there and see what the responses are. And I usually, you know, it's like you put something out there, you never hear back, but then I'll be at a random event and someone will go, hey, I saw that. I bought that mm -hmm. book and read it. And I'm like, great, I'll keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because if I can pull someone out of their phone by putting something on their phone, that's great. I'm in. Yeah. It's like I can just jujitsu Instagram's <laughs> algorithm and say, go read a book. Yeah. I don't think withdrawal is the answer. I just don't. Mm -hmm. I, I think you need to find a way to have a presence that's um, really building the kingdom. And pointing towards the good, true, and the beautiful. You're yeah. messing me up, man, because I thought I was doing a good deed by getting off all social media. Now I feel like I gotta <laughs> jump back on. No, I stay off of Twitter. That's like that's a <laughs> dumpster fire. I don't go on there. So yeah. Yeah. How don't do you, we use yeah. how do we show up where our people are at yeah. and use those tools? Because they're not going to leave those places. No, they're not. They're there. Else. Yep. Yeah. And so it is, is how do we navigate that space um, in ways that are um, healthy? but also transformative for our people. Mm, that's right. Um, but when I think about formation and I think about the difficulty our people are having, sometimes the difficulty comes because they don't have a good foundation. They don't know how to think well about their faith because they haven't been formed to think well about their yeah. faith within the context of the local church. And so when it comes to Christian education in church, there's so many different models that we've seen over the past 20, 50, 100 years. And one that I'm really familiar with is Sunday school, right? Because I've been around that, that oh, long. Yeah. I'm 100 years old. There have been so <laughs> many different models of Christian education in the local church. Uh, but in the past, I would say 20, 30 years, there's been a, a move away from that and a move away from Sunday school, a move away from formal educational environments. And now we see churches coming back. And so, Mason, why do you think there was a shift away from Sunday school and was that uh, a good or difficult decision? 
I'm not sure for all the reasons of the shift away from Sunday school. I do think that the way that Sunday school has been done for decades was a non-progressive circular discussion where you could get into a group and be with that group for decades. And if you wanted to, or you're, you know, if you're an adult, you go into this department and all of a sudden that's your department until you go into the next life stage, which is 10 years later. And we would go through books or we would like Southern Baptist in particular would depend upon provided resources, which would be topical. And so people would get, you know, I want to do a study on suffering or I want to do Blackaby's experiencing God or walk through different things. But that all is kind of a piecemeal buffet for education. One of the benefits, if you think about a systematic education, is that you're you're building a foundation and then you're building upon that foundation. And so here at TVCI, we've thought through like, okay, what do people need to know? They need to know the Bible. They need to apply the Bible to life. And they need to understand how life is transformed by knowing the Bible and applying it to life. And what the Bible wants you to, to see, both who God is and who God wants you to be. And you can do that in a way where you don't have to be an expert. And so I, I don't know exactly what brought about the demise. It might have been the seeker-sensitive movement. It might have been a number of things that we moved away from having Sunday school in the mornings. It might have been that we had to fit different styles of worship services in, so we just cut out that space on Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> no, is that no? Okay. <laughs> Nobody? Okay. All right. Um, but I do think that what I've noticed is that people who have been in the church, so like in the in our year-long 29-week intensive discipleship program called the training program, what I see of individuals who are in their 60s, early 70s, who have been in the church for a long time, they will walk through the meta-narrative of the Bible over the course of the year. And they will come at some point in the year and tell me, I've been in church for 40 years and no one has ever told me that. I've never heard that. I never knew the Bible was one story. I never knew this about God. I never knew that he thought this about me. Because what we've done in evangelicalism is we've said for the, for the sake of um, ecumenicalism, for the sake of getting along with others, we have said here are the core doctrines that we need to believe. Here are the seven or eight that we need to believe. This is what we're going to teach. And there's more, than, there's more than seven or eight doctrines in the Bible, especially more than that in church history. And so people will hear things and they'll be like, nah, that, that's not true. I don't believe that. You are reading out of the wrong Bible. And I'll think it's the same Bible. It's just that evangelicalism didn't teach it to you mm. or me. And so we have to get to a point where people can go, yeah, I'm a Southern Baptist or yeah, I'm a Protestant or I'm an evangelical. And when I hear about things like the creeds, I don't think that's bad because it's uh, quote unquote Catholic. Which is what a lot, of, a lot of, like, it's what I believe growing up in Southern Baptist Church. Anything before the Reformation was bad. Mm. And we've got to correct that for people to say, hey, here's this rich heritage. So I've kind of jumped far back. You asked about Sunday school. I went back to the Reformation. But what yeah. I would think is the importance of formation for people is to say, you have to build it. Like, you have to think through, what do I need to learn? And it's not, oh, that guy went to seminary so he can teach me about the deep truths of the Bible. Doctrine and Revelation would tell us that God wants to be known, and he's made a way for him to be, himself to be known in his book. And then the Son of God took on flesh so he could make himself known. Like how kind of God is it that he would take on flesh, make himself known to us? And we need to know all the implications of that, because it shapes how we relate to him. And the church should be teaching those things to its people. It should not hand that off to seminaries. Mm -hmm. 
It needs to reclaim that because, and I had this conversation with someone earlier this week, like you don't have to go into massive debt to go get a systematic education in theology. And you, if you're not going to go into vocational ministry, maybe seminary is not the best thing for you because it can be a, a hard place for some to think through matters of faith at the scope and scale that they're handled with in class. Because so many of us are used to handling measures of faith in a very intimate and uh, interpersonal way. Yeah. P- push and pull on this because, um, and I'm interested, and I'm not uh, shouting down anything, please hear me. I am so committed to the idea that we need to have systematized education, formal spaces that are teaching us information and knowledge of God. But I can't help but wonder, especially over the past two or three years, how many times I've said to myself, so many people know so many of the doctrines and know so much about God know so much about, uh, well, maybe not God, but maybe just say know so much about the Bible, and they are some of the biggest jerks I've ever met. And that's kind of how we talk about it. And I don't mean jerks because they're like reformed and crusty. I don't mean that. I mean, they have zero idea of what it is like to be like Jesus. They have Mm -hmm. no idea how to deal with their emotions. And -hmm. I think one of the great failures of Christian education in the evangelical world for a very long time is what we... Typically, the evangelical answer has been, let's do another class. Let's do another Mm -hmm. class. Let's do another Mm -hmm. class. And I wondered if these other parts of the anthropology of who, who it, what it means to be human have, have been neglected. So one thing I'm so interested right now is the metaphor of the heart in the Bible, and I'm reading a book by Tro- a, a, a professor named Troxel on it, and it's he it's so great. But this idea that man the the innermost part of who you are is yes the is the metaphor that you use in the Bible is the heart is yes mind absolutely mm-hmm. mind. It's also this thing of will and desire. Some some people mm-hmm. kind of separate these things out, but basically choosing, right? Choosing mm-hmm. and will, desire, your loves, and then this last and maybe most neglected space, which is your emotions. And I just think what we know how to do really well is form and shape a mind. What we do a little bit better and what used to happen, and I'm talking ancient times, is talk about formation in terms of reordering loves and mm-hmm. desires. And then there's this, again, long neglected space, which I don't know that any Christian spaces are really doing, but telling you how to, how to do mad, sad, glad, and afraid. How to, what does yeah. it look like to be mad as a Christian? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with your anger? How do you, and look, COVID has just proved that we have, that, mm-hmm. Christ, that at least the evangelical church has no idea how to do any of that. Politics in the last few years has proved that evangelicals don't know how to do that. And so I'm super interested in what your thoughts are, Mason, about this idea that formation is not simply aimed at the head. It's also aimed at uh, the those other spaces. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that? Oh, I think we could talk about this for a long time. Yeah. I, I also think I'm halfway through that same book yeah. and think it's great. It's awesome. Uh, Craig Troxel. Yeah, Craig, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, Part of the reason I'm studying Jonathan Edwards uh, for my PhD is that he has this faculty psychology where he talks about uh, the emotions or affections and the will. And so like your will is free, but it's free to do what it wants utmost. And outside of Jesus, Mm -hmm. it's going to want sin. And, And what it wants will not glorify God. When we talk about Christian formation, I mean, I've met a lot of these people that are very educated. And I would not want to hang out with them. Mm. And I would not want them shaping my kids. Mm. I just wouldn't. Yeah. And I think there's this there's this thing that evangelicalism has had kind of a weird 
um, swing between anti-intellectualism mm-hmm. and pitting the head against the heart. Mm-hmm. And so in, in a lot of churches, I think you'll have people who think, well, I like to learn things and I want to know about it. But the other camp in the church says, well, yeah, you know too much though, because you don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And we want to just go love people. And even, even if we love people and teach them to think about God wrongly, yes, it's okay because we're still loving them. Right. But then there's people who are like, well, we got to teach them to think, we got to teach them to think about God rightly, but that's all they need to know. Well, that's, both sides are at fault. Right. And then I, I think conversations that I really am trying to have with people to think through that right knowing leads to right doing, mm-hmm. that I think it's, I don't know that it's as linear as that. Mm-hmm. I think you are an embodied person who has to consistently interpret what is happening to you and then reinterpret what has happened to you. And doing that in a relationship with God, growing in self-awareness and growing in emotional maturity is really important. And so I think there are some of us who keep God at a distance, either by doing actions for him that are good or by learning about him, because thereby having knowledge about him, we don't have to let him know about us and we can guard ourselves from the intimacy that Christianity requires. Mm. And I think both ways, both ways you can find a way to guard yourself from the, the putting off of self and the intimacy that the Holy Spirit invites you into. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. And when I hear you um, talk, Mason, I just think about this integrated approach to Christian mm-hmm. education. Yeah. Um, and so with uh, Sunday school or even just classes, um, and to your point, Adam, just people pushing back against... We don't need another book to just read through and, and fill out homework and just have a discussion that it ends upon itself, mm-hmm. um, but is not integrated into a fuller idea of what it means for us to be Christian. And we can just see the fruit of that in our culture right now. So Mason, when you think about w- what does it look like to have an integrated approach to Christian education for the person who's listening, who's like, man, this is all well and great. You know, I know how to have this one-off class. I know how to order this material from this organization. But what is it like for me to rethink of how our church does Christian education in an integrated way so the head and the heart and all the other pieces that we've talked about go together intentionally? That's a great question. I think the the lectures that we teach through and the lessons we teach through within the training program and the residency here, and I think what we're trying to get at in every environment that we have, is pulling together both the story of the Bible, the Bible applied to life, and the person you become as a Christian. And in thinking through that, the integration piece is really the work of the body. So, like, we've got different departments here at the church that focus on different aspects of this. And so knowing the pressure that we feel to be a perfectionist in our modern culture is that I'm afraid to say anything that might not be 100% correct, because I want you to know that I'm I'm not right. I don't want to be seen as wrong or or failure. Also, you might blast me if I put it out publicly. So I've got to be right all the time or I've got to be quiet. And then um, we have so many people who don't don't have friendships and safe spaces to work out their life experience. That it's hard because either we don't know how to have friendships, we are too busy, we don't value those things, or we are consistently turning to consumer goods to fulfill those needs, our digital candy, that it's important to help people understand that 
God not only knows you have emotions, he created them and provides for them and wants you to let him, to like, uh, one author says, like, the Christian life is becoming more aware of the person who's already present to you. Like, you're being present with the one who's already present mm. to you. And so it's not, I need more books, I have to get smarter, I have to just learn more, and, because what if you're bad at reading or have dyslexia? But to be able to sit with someone, have a conversation about a topic, and then take into the fact that the person in front of you is an embodied person, made by God, loved by God, worthy of dignity, kindness, and respect. It changes the way that you teach, because often teachers will look at students as stubborn people who just need to get it right. Like, why won't you learn this? And so I, I think I try and describe sometimes the way that we do things. Like, I've got a lecture coming up on the Psalms, and when I teach about the Psalms, we talk about the Psalms of Lament. Of lament. And in talking about the Psalms of Lament, people are like, why are these here? And it's like, because there's something that's wrong that can't go right unless God makes it that way. Mm. And then I'll just stop and go, any of you had that experience? Some go wrong in your life that can't go right unless God fixes it. And I will take the space in class to ask that question and just wait. And then we can have a real conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it's finding ways to, my learning objective that night is not that they know what the Psalter looks like and how all the books are broken down. It is, have you connected this to the fact that you are thought of here? Mm. Or we'll do John 17, the high priestly prayer. And we'll walk through it and say, okay, this is Christ's prayer. What is he praying for? Who's he praying for? Oh, look, disciples. Oh, look, you. Mm. What does that mean for you? And to give them space to try and work that out. I, uh, Elizabeth, can I say one more thing? Sure. Okay. So I think around this, I've been toying around with these terms, trying to figure out how to explain it to people when we think about how to in integrate things. And I think a lot of Christians doubt their competence. Like they've been in church for a long time. They're like, I don't know. I don't know what things are. I think I know some, but I like how Adam says or how Elizabeth says it. And so I'll just repeat what they say. Well, they don't have confidence in their competence. And I think a lot of evangelicalism lacks confidence in their competence, even though they've got a shelf full of books and been to a lot of classes because they're not articulating their faith. Mm. I don't think that they've taken, uh, many of us have not taken the time to be okay getting it wrong as long as we're moving forward and making progress. And so I often will tell people like, hey, God is big enough for you to be in progress or in process. Mm. He's big enough for you to be in process. And so with your emotions, how you're thinking about him, like the the way that you will grow in your understanding of God is 15 years from now will be very different than now. Lord willing, better. But you can relax a little bit knowing that the God who stands outside of time looks at your life and knows what he kind of, he knows how far you're going to get. But you want to be at the end today, so you just, you need to relax. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I just think about... Um, what you talked to about, Mason, of needing to articulate your faith. Yeah. Um, and articulate it in conversations with other people that are full of compassion and understanding mm -hmm. um, and not seeking to win a debate necessarily, but yeah. seeking to have a conversation. Um, and how much of our evangelical identity is connected to being in isolated silos Mm -hmm. um, versus being out there with people. And it's a generalization. It's not necessarily true of everyone. Um, but are people just feeling comfortable sharing the fullness of their faith 
everywhere they go. Um, And I know as a teacher, that's been one of the best ways that I've grown is having to figure out how to talk about these things. Mm. And it's a growth jump from the book to a presentation. And everyone's not out here trying to give presentations or needs to, but how do we get the words off the page um, and into general conversation with the people around us? So good. So good. I agree. Mason, you know, so... uh, you're so good at this and you do this on your Instagram. Uh, what's your handle for our listeners? It's just my name, Mason King at Instagram.com for everybody. That's how it works. So <laughs> yeah. is that, is it's like an email address. I think it's is like an email. So oh, yeah, email cool. that cool, cool. email address. And I think Instagram sends you an invite, right? Or something oh, like cool, that. Cool, cool. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> says the man who's not, on I'm not, I have media. no idea. Anyways. Um, but truly, do you have any book recommendations for us or ways people can learn um, from you, TBCI, on how to build a strategy for Christian education? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think there's some, when, when we think about building strategy for Christian education, like we're working on resources. Our good friend JT English put out his book this last year, which talked about like really what we do here um, during his tenure here. It's called Deep Discipleship. I think about, I'm a big fan of Alan Jacobs, and Alan, uh, Dr. Jacobs is at Baylor, and he's written a few books like called How to Think or Breaking Bread with the Dead. Um, I, I think about Klein Snodgrass's book, Who God Says You Are. Mm-hmm. Like I try and reread certain books every year. Yeah. I read Klein's book every year. Klein Snodgrass, Who God Says You Are. And then I want to think about uh, who do I want the people in my ministry to become? What kind of person? What kind of character? What do I want them to know? Mm. And then I just try and reverse engineer that. Like if I want them to be a certain type of person... What do they need to know to get there, and, and in what order would best suit that? And then how can I help provide a discussion-based roundtable room that can be a uh, dialogical space? Like, I do not need another space where they sit in a lecture style, and I just jump up like a Netflix show and talk them through something. They think that's nice, um, affirm me, and then go on. It has to be an engaging space. So like Elizabeth and I, we'll, we'll read about adult learning environments, and we'll think about, um, there's a few, I listened to the Mars Hill Audio Journal, and they've done a few episodes talking about Christian education, the use of technology, um, the use of formative spaces. There's a book called Small Teaching that uh, one of my friends has really pointed me towards. They're just kind of little uh, actionable things that you can put within your classes and uh, in your lectures or ministry. So there's just a few off, off, the, off the cuff. I think I also, when we think about... Um, Christian education, you have to be steeped with a good understanding of what is forming your people. Mm. So not just how to, but what's going on. So pay attention to news. Look at it. Don't just be a consumer, but be a thoughtful um, observer. And then I'm buying books on worldview. I'm interacting with different things, trying to understand what is the motivational or affectional pull for people towards certain, certain views. And then how do these line up with the gospel? Everything's promising a version of the good life. So what are they promising that we need to be able to look at and say, that will work for a while, mm. and then it will fail you. So fail faster mm. and come to Jesus. Thank you, Mason. And it's, first of all, it's a joy to work with you at TVC to do the things um, that you're talking about today. So if you haven't put that together, Mason is actually my boss. um, So that's always fun. (laughs) Um, But no, it's just, I think to help our people be formed into the image of God, 
and to know the comprehensive and intentional way that we have to do that as ministry leaders, but also um, just as Christians of us being aware that we are being intentionally formed into a certain Mm -hmm. kind of person, whether or not we want to because of the information that we consume. And so for us to have a heart that yearns to be formed into the image of God and to push back against the messages we receive in culture and to dig our heels into the truth that's in scripture. And like you said, Mason, to realize that we're in process, that it's not yeah. it's not perfection, it's faithfulness to the journey. And there are ways that we as ministry leaders can create intentional pathways of development and formation in our church to help our people get there. Um, thanks, Mason. It's been a joy to talk to you today. I know that you've been a blessing to our people, and we will make sure to have the books that Mason mentioned in the show notes, as well as his correct Instagram handle. I do that. Like, I I have a thing called Rabbit Trails that when I am not in a crazy season, I try and update monthly with book links or things I'm into and um, different helps. So I I try and do that. You can find me um, on my blog through the Instagram and the interwebs. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. If you like what you heard, please give us a great review where you listen to the podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram and support our patron page at patron.podbeam.com backslash culture matters. Thanks and God bless.